more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Hello, hello, KBVR listeners. My name is Adrian Gallo. I am one of the hosts of Inspiration Dissemination. We are a radio show, podcast, and blog that usually records on Sunday. But today, we are having a Bright Ideas episode uh, like I said, my name is Adrian Gall, and at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc or a community member at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.com edu slash inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our twitter and podcast pages inspiration dissemination is recorded live and today we are lucky to be joined by chris hubanks chris is a uh, one of the vice presidents of the local naacp lynn benton uh, branch and is an assistant director for the residential education or sorry for the residential education at OSU's University Housing and Dining Services. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Okay, so like I mentioned, uh, this these summer seasons of Inspiration Dissemination we're calling Bright Ideas because we would really like to have conversations that we think need to happen on a variety of topics. Today we're going to be focusing a lot on environmental justice, uh, what it is, how it started, and how you can get involved in this local community here in Corvallis, but also, you know, broadly speaking, we'll also talk a little bit about the NAACP branch, um, our roles in them, we're, we're both members, uh, and, you know, how, how how the branch can be uh, used as a way for you to kind of get involved in environmental justice issues. But before we get into it, Chris, tell us about um, your story of the Detroit flash floods. Yeah, so... Um, it was, it's an example of how I have, when I think about how I've been impacted by uh, climate change and why climate justice work is really important, in particular the intersections around um, racism and climate justice, um, did, what happened, uh, what's happening in Detroit and in other parts of the Midwest around flooding is one example of that. Um, it's a community of where I'm from. I grew up there. I went to high school uh, there, and I went to college um, at the University of Michigan, which is near there. Um, but in the 2014, there was a big massive flooding uh, that happened there um, from a really intense storm. And as a result, um, many of the, much of the city had flooding that they had not seen before. Um, it particularly impacts me in the church community that my family attends, uh, that their basement was completely flooded and had significant damage um, that wasn't covered by insurance since that isn't something that was 
um, that comes with homeowners insurance there. It's not something that is anticipated. Um, so if you didn't have it added on, which is unlikely, uh, you didn't get coverage for it. So it has taken uh, significant amounts of time, years to actually renovate, uh, fix those problems. Damages had accrued up to um, around $13,000 was the estimate uh, in that church community. And when it did get fixed, it happened again because the storms are continuing to happen at increased rates uh, most recently. So we'll link to this NPR story that you provided us in our blog post, but I want to take out a, a piece here because you mentioned that this was a 2014 event, but quote, in the past decade has been particularly bad. Heavy rainfall caused severe flooding in 2014, 2016, 2019, and 2020, where uh, one person quoted says, the 100-year storm now kind of looks like a 10-year storm because the recurrence interval has changed. And that's what you're describing where you don't have flood insurance on these, on these you know, classic homeowners insurance things because this didn't happen before, but now it's happening all the time. All the time and repeatedly and because of how the infrastructure is um, and how it's been, how it's set up and how it has, it's old and has not been improved. Um, it's a city that is primarily people of color, mostly black, um, with, with uh, a Mexican community as well. Um, it's definitely an example of an intersection of racism and climate change, that this is a community that has heavily been impacted by intense storms and flooding that is unprecedented, not like before. Um, and they are impacted differently than uh the surrounding suburban areas. Um, and to the point of that, as it states in that article, like 40% or 46% of the 4,667 Detroit households have experienced some type of flooding in, uh, since 2012, between 2012 and 2020. That's huge. That's almost like one in two households, basically. And uh, an, an, another piece from the NPR story, which was, uh, this was a study from Wayne State University that, uh, more than 40% of Detroiters have experienced household flooding, but that, um, uh, but that a majority of them are in black neighborhoods because they were found to be twice as likely uh, to be at higher risk of, of flooding, and that renters were also twice as likely uh, to be impacted by flooding compared to homeowners. So the, the, the compounding issues of, um, you know, even if you do own your home, yeah. you know, uh, or if you're a renter, and if you if, if 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 you're a renter and you're black in Detroit, then you're mm -hmm. almost for sure going to be impacted by by this Detroit storm. Um, tell us a little bit more about the church itself, the, the the basement flooding, and what that church meant as a form of community, and and how how, how that really impacted this community because it's more than just a structure, right? Yeah, it's 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 a community gathering space. It's a space for folks to. Um, well, of course, to worship, to to join together in, in their common beliefs, but it also is around relationships. And it's about, um, you know, especially in times of a pandemic, it's where people go for healing, it's where people go for inspiration. Um, and this is a structure that's impacted. It impacts the gathering space. The basement is where people can gather for fellowship. It's where people can do social things. It's where classes can be taught. It's a significant portion of the building structure, so it's significantly impacted. It's also 
the when it when you don't pay attention or you don't have the resources, you know, you can get molding, you can get the damages become exponential. They compound. So um, and then they become more expensive. So they become systemic. Um, and so the solution then becomes what can we how can we fix what can we do to prolong to get by things like that and that's something that uh anyone who's been in a situation around home improvement can relate to what's unfair about it is that that is disproportionately impacting black people um in an area that's predominantly black with policies and structures that have been set up to impact black communities differently and when things happen um the recovery is different and that's where racism and climate change really intersect and that if we are going to actually think about how to fix how to shift structures how to change uh our reliance on fossil fuels um our ability to get around to be together to be in community we have to understand how the structures exist to segregate us and how they get in the way when we experience these intense storms when we experience the the climate shifting and changing as a result of that um and many of those folks in Detroit um or if you want to take other areas like the Caribbean the Pacific Islands these communities are not producing uh the most carbon they're not putting the most carbon into the atmosphere and they're not making decisions about policies uh that will improve their living condition that will support their thriving um so they're not a part of those decisions but they're being impacted disproportionately by them when climate change issues happen as a small self plug in uh December of 2021 we interviewed uh Dr now Dr Stephen Johnson uh with the blog post titled uh global ocean modeling with the microscope on micronesia uh Stephen started graduate school because uh he, where he was from is one of these islands in Micronesia that were I mean he could see the rising seas in his literal backyard. Um so he was um that was his motivation to pursue graduate school, understand the climate system and figure out how um at least for his community in particular um how they can adapt uh especially in regards to to food systems. Um so I I recommend that that episode because it's I mean talk about a motivation to to kind of fix these systems. Um back to systems. How much of a help was the city of Detroit in trying to fix or ameliorate what was first water damage and you know for anyone that has fixed water damage, if you don't fix it immediately, it could very quickly turn to mold, which then gets much more expensive and much more uh serious. Um so how how much assistance was provided to the church? Uh th- that was pretty much from the community from those members there isn't um i'm not aware of at least programs i would imagine some type of uh citywide or some type of assistance programs or fundraising and things like that playing come into play but there was not very much uh politically not very much from the the government to mitigate that because there are still issues and people are still not in just that particular community there are homes that are still impacted um so there isn't that much aid that comes systemically from the state or federally so you're if if you're if you're in Detroit and you're a renter 
and you you compound that with with being black, then you're just much more likely to experience any kind of flooding issues. And then if you do experience flooding, you know you lose all all your belongings. You have to start from scratch. But in this case, uh, at least in regards to the church, uh, there was no real assistance provided for rebuilding, and it all had to come on the backs of the community members that mm-hmm. were probably also impacted. Mm-hmm. Or and they could and and may have been impacted in their own homes, depending on where they lived, and. At that point, depending on the scale of damage, then you could be displaced. If you're home, if you're no longer able to occupy or for portions of it, you know, you're, you are no longer able to utilize in the same way and you're unable to fix it or don't have the resources, then you are having a different living experience than others. You are disproportionately impacted in that particular way. Um, and even if you own your home, uh, that becomes then your responsibility to figure out uh, and what then is what then are your solutions, I think, becomes the question. And it's positioned often where then that particular area or community is blamed for that. Um, people make comments about it or place judgment on it unfairly um, without understanding the, the systemic issues that come into play uh, with why a city or why a community looks the way that it does. No, to actually initially just to, to lean into the, Oh, why, why didn't you know that this flood was coming? It's like, okay, well, first of all, Detroit mostly gets snow. Uh, so like in the winter for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean like the infrastructure is literally not built for these kinds of like massive rains, rainstorms because they don't usually get that kind of rain. Yeah. It's usually snow. Um, also the, the infrastructure itself, uh, the, the city, uh, lumps uh, storm stormwater and and sewer water in the same pipes, so uh, when it did flood, uh, there was just a like a crazy amount of back pressure that occurred. And you know, let's go back to the to the point that like most of the of the housing was built in the in the the fifties to nineteen thirties or so. And you know, you can you can guess uh, where the better infrastructure is 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 located today and where it has not been updated. So the um, the the, the <laughs> The places that are more likely to have uh, people of color, non-white people, are probably the places that don't have updated infrastructure, which are more likely to flood in less serious events. Um, and then, yeah. Ooh, well, and I think the and I think the lesson for that is because why? Because we're here at in Corvallis, you know. What is the lesson that we learn from these experiences for something like the example of the increased flooding that's happening in Detroit and other parts of the Midwest? Um, the storms that are happening uh, in the Caribbean, the storm, the flood, the increased waters that impact the Pacific Islands, all of these things. Why does that matter to a town like Corvallis? I think we bring these stories to light because um, maybe you it's important to, to pay attention to them and see our connection to it. It can feel like living here that we are not necessarily impacted as much because of where we live and the resources that exist here, we are also on the West Coast impacted by fires, by climate change issues as well, by people who are displaced, uh, mostly east of here. Um, but it can feel very much that we're shielded by uh, the type of weather that we have here, um, the resources that we have, the amount of money that exists here. Um, and because this is a because of that, that's a reason why the town looks the way that it looks, you know, 
And that is a part of why you might not know these types of things are happening, um, which is important because we are all connected. We are all one country. Um, we have a reason to be invested in undoing racism and thinking about how policies can look differently in our community so that um, we can figure out how to coexist together and be better stewards of energy. So um, I th we're going to touch on specific ways to get involved in the local community towards the end of this episode. Um, but I, I do want to touch on a few points, which is uh, we're speaking today uh, in August of 2022. Uh, last month, uh, there were some really wild floods in Tennessee. Uh, in, yes. in, in the same month, there were uh, also floods in Yellowstone National Park that took out entire communities, took out whole homes. Um, St. Louis. St. Louis as well. Um, this... Uh, this concept of, you know, floods destroying communities, I mean, one only needs to look at the Floodlines podcast uh, from Hurricane Katrina. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What a fabulous piece of journalism and storytelling. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, we may or may not get into Hurricane Maria, which uh, we... There's that. Uh, yeah. We, uh, Inspiration Dissemination, interviewed um, Holly Haran. Uh, she was a critical medical applied anthropologist uh, where she looked at maternal infant stress and it just so happened that she was looking at maternal infant stress right when Hurricane Maria happened so her data collection was all wild I recommend that podcast that was in 28 uh, December of 2018 um, and back home here in Oregon uh, we may not have floods uh, but there's going to be a big earthquake sometime soon uh, the Labor Day fires of 2020 uh, that was literally spewing uh, ash all over the place where the air was toxic outside and ironically at that time the air was toxic inside because of covid um, yeah. so <laughs> so if, if, if you think these natural disasters can't hit home um just wait and they will because uh climate change is changing well climate change is making these kind of uh obscure events or events that wouldn't happen very often much more likely to happen um okay so yes and and as a result of that um, there is displacement. There's mm -hmm. displacement, and we see that, and we see that happening. People have to move. People come to different places, and once there's movement of people, we are, um, how do I want to say it? Uh, that's This is where we will see heightened racism, heightened blatant examples of racism, heightened blatant decision-making as a result of racism to say, you know, we're sorry that happened to you, but we don't want you here. And this is the core issue that we need to figure out um, right now. And it's now is the time. Why wait for something to happen here to then have to deal with that and figure out those things or have structures in place that support racism in place when something happens? Now is the time to fix those things, to make better uh, to reimagine and make better decisions around um, our community and to work on the, f the, the results of racism have to do a lot with how we've been separated. We've been separated and segregated so we don't live or we live mostly with people who look like us. That's how the narrative has really been in the United States. And as a result of that separation, people have fears. 
about living together, about traveling together. Um, <laughs> the fact that we are still so car reliant throughout this country is a result of that, that we, <laughs> you need a car, basically, if you're going to go from Corvallis to Portland. Um, if you're going to go to from Corvallis to Albany, the town next oh, next <laughs> door, if you want to commute and work between those two towns, you need a car. And with a hundred over 100,000 people in those two communities, the fact that we don't have a better transportation system that's, that would allow someone, uh, to, groups of people to be able to travel together is, to me, about oppression. It's about racism. It's about classism. It's about separation. And we get to think about how that impacts our communities and why we don't know or are not connected to uh, these types of examples of racism and climate change that are further from us, but still are uh, connected to us, if that makes sense. Let's dial in on this transportation issue, because I think most people would think, oh, how is how, how is how is having a car in highways racist? Like, come on, yeah. that's a stretch too far. <laughs> it's like, OK, um, I'm rubbing my hands here. If, if you can't tell, um, there is a fair amount of research uh, showing one that um, the Federal Highways Administration way back in the 20s to 30s, I believe, when a lot of the ha- housing was being built, um, that the Federal Highways Administration purposefully put these major highways that bisected uh, communities of color uh, because, well, they were disenfranchised. So they uh, they couldn't push back against these these highways. So so now you have these massive highways uh, that completely bisect communities that used to be cohesive. And these highways are, no surprise, a lot of noise pollution and a lot of pollution pollution. So now uh, you have a whole bunch of highways uh, that follow along black communities. And these yes. black communities are subject to a whole lot more noise pollution, a whole lot more pollution pollution. And of course, there was lead in the gasoline up until the 80s. Oh, I need to double check myself on that. So now you have you know, lead pollution in, in addition to you know air emissions. It gets real bad. And health, and health issues that stem from poor air quality. Yeah, right. And then if you're in that community, it's like you can't go like visit your friend who's like a football's throw away because you have to go over, you know, eight lanes of traffic. Yeah. And so you you literally get disconnected from from your from your community. Uh, If there's a school nearby that you can't actually access because of this stuff. Um, And the uh, I'm I'm, in my mind, I'm I'm pulling a lot from uh, I believe it's called the color of law. It's uh, he's a lawyer that looked at how housing was built, but he he goes into detail. I'll I'll remember his name in a second. Um, uh, He goes into detail a lot about how the suburbanization of America and urban sprawl essentially forced us to create more and more highways and entrenched this car culture around us where in order to do anything, to go to the grocery store, to go to work, you need a vehicle. So then you are yourself reliant on these highways that in and of themselves are partially responsible for continuing to disenfranchise uh, uh, non-white communities especially, but then it just leads to more and more pollution, Mm. right? So um, there's been a big movement in in some places in the United States where we're trying to get cars out of uh, downtowns at least. Um, because if you get cars out of downtown, one, there's less pedestrian accidents. Uh, that all seems, I don't want to get hit by a car. Um, <laughs> I, I bike everywhere and, uh, I really enjoy downtown. So I'd love to bike downtown when there aren't any cars. Um, and of course, if there are a few car, fewer cars on the road, uh, well, then there's also less pollution, less emissions overall. Um, there's also been research to show that when you, uh, take cars out of downtown, uh, you force people to, you know, slowly walk around downtown or ride around downtown and when people 
look at all these little shops, they're more likely to spend in those shops. So you remove cars, you decrease pollution, you increase exercise, you increase revenue for the local businesses. Uh, there's more outside, you know, outside food to be had. Um, so this is just one of the many ways that when exactly. you think of environmental justice, uh, it seems like such a big, broad issue. And it is. But there's also some very local uh, things to start considering, like reimagining downtown. What would Corvallis be like? Especially, you know, first through third streets or whatever, uh, first and second street. Um, a Absolutely. Lot, those businesses would have a boon. <laughs> of, well, exactly. Of and 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 making sure that that becomes what you just talked about, a part of climate justice conversations, that that is exactly what it is, that in our minds, people have. We have it in our minds in a particular specific way. You know, it's beyond the ways that you can serve in your household. That's a part of it recycling, composting, you know, the things that the, the, the little steps that we do, the steps that we take in our own lives um, to uh, reduce carbon emissions. Let's just say it basically there. There's that piece, but there is that just like there's the interpersonal piece, you know, around I get to know my neighbor, I get to know my community, I get invested. There's the systemic piece that we also get to bring in. And so what I like about your example is, is that that's the systemic thing. It's like, how do we change the structure in a community to get them to be better, one, to be better stewards of energy and to also increase our ability to be a community, to live together, to invest in that community. All of those things are a part of what it means to, to uh, coexist together, to live on, to live together and that's the piece where racism has been so damaging is that it has made it gets in the way of us being able to think that way and and be together in that way and we all need each other there as we all will be displaced in some form as the climate continues to be uh different more destructive uh places will be less and less inhabitable and we'll have to figure out how to do that and the uh, the the default cannot be racism, can't be, well, I've worked hard in my community that's, you know, away from all of these things. So I wanted to be maintained that way. And, you know, sorry for you, because <laughs> the structures that we have put in place have led it to be the way our communities are and have given access to the wealthiest, to white folks, <laughs> to be in spaces uh, that have shielded them from this uh, issue in a particular way. So that is why this conversation right now is so important. That is why the reimagination of how we get around and how we are together is so important because we're not all going to have a Tesla. <laughs> we're not going to all switch to an electric car. We have to have mass transit. We have to have find ways to move us around and to get to places uh, without using fossil fuels. And we should be able to do that. We have the technology. We have the the intellect, the people who know how to do it, and the money and resources. So why don't we? And to me, the answer to that is racism. How we set up policies, how we get a light rail, why we don't have a light rail system throughout the West Coast, throughout Oregon, for example. These are all things we get to say, why we get to shoot for and figure out why is that in place. The policies that we have are so localized that any one specific community could decide they don't want that to be in their community. And all of a sudden the project is not able to happen. So that means that a small community of people can decide and shift and impact 
a structure that really works for everyone, that would be better for everyone, that they can say, no, we don't want that. Um, that's not fair, especially when for a, a, a small select amount of people with more resources, affluence and power to decide that for everyone else. To, to put some some brass tacks on this, it's been uh, the, the 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 broad way to describe this is called NIMBYism, <laughs> where the uh, the uh, NIMBYism stands for not in my backyardism. Uh, but but uh-huh. oftentimes what happens is you know there's uh, some some community meeting where it's like hey uh, we're we're gonna build more housing. It's gonna be some medium and high density housing in this area, and the area that they're building in, the people who own homes, which are usually older, and because they're older, they're usually whiter. The people that uh, that have, or, you know, they're uh, older, wider, retired, which means that they have time, that they have resources. So they will go to these community meetings constantly and just lobby against, I don't want uh, high-density housing or I don't want X, Y, Z in my place. I, 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 want it, I want the character of the neighborhood to stay the way it is. Um, but, like, the people that would actually benefit... Yeah, well, they're working three jobs. They're picking up their kids from school and they're like dropping them off and they're like taking them to, you know, whatever. They don't have time to go to these meetings. So even though they would be benefited the most, they literally don't have time to try and, you know, add 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 their voice to um, to, to that discussion. Um, I want to narrow down into this community aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get into the NAACP Lynn Benton branch. Yeah. Uh, before we do, I do want to specifically note um, a couple things with environmental justice. Um, it started back in 1990. Uh, Robert Bullard is said to be kind of the father of the current environmental justice movement. He wrote a book called uh, The uh, Dumping in Dixie. Um but uh, at, at that time in 1991, there were 17 principles uh, that were developed for environmental justice. I just want to read uh, two of them. Um, so out of the 17, I'm going to read, uh, let's see here. How about 13 and 14? Um, so uh, 14 is environmental justice opposes the destructive operations of multinational corporations. Uh, and then 15 is environmental justice opposes occupation, repression, and exploitation of lands, people, and cultures, and other life forms. Um, so, you know, again, this was way back in 1991, uh, but I think a lot of people can probably sign on to that. Um, an addendum, the book I was thinking of is called The Color of Law, Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. It was uh, published in 2017 by Richard Rothstein. Um, really, really good book. Highly recommend. Um, okay. Uh, now let's go to the NAACP Lynn Benton branch. Uh, the reason for this episode to actually occur is because we are both on the Environmental and Climate Justice Committee um, in the local branch. So before we get into the committee, uh, tell us a little bit, since you are one of the vice presidents, tell us a little bit about uh, this branch, uh, maybe how it's grown, its uh, kind of effectiveness in local organizing thus far, and uh, where we hope to take it in the future and how it how people can get involved. Yeah, our branch has grown more recently. We've actually like tripled our membership. And so there's a lot of interested folks who are engaged in civil rights and black liberation, which is really exciting. Um, We have lots of our committees. We've grown and expanded, like having the Environmental Justice Committee um, is a newer committee for us. And that's really great that we have folks coming together together. And a part of my role with it as vice president, uh, one piece that I um, take on in my particular position is around community education. 
um, which is uh, what information do we need? Um, where, how do we have these kinds of kinds of have the, the skills to have these types of conversations, difficult conversations that often we avoid or get in the way of us actually making decisions? And actually, uh, number 16 of the Environmental Justice Principles from 1991, quote, calls for the education of present and future generations with emphasized social and environmental issues based on our, our experience and an appreciation of our diverse cultural perspectives. Oh, man. Exactly. <laughs> and diverse cultural perspectives, to me, I read that as we need folks who, uh, we need folks with diverse perspectives in leadership and leading climate justice work. Uh, has had a face of white leadership um, and that needs to shift and that needs to change. We need to get connected to and involved in, in local indigenous communities who understand this space. This is land that is theirs. Um, who should lead us here uh, to understand and to bring in <laughs> communities with disabilities, people of color, black, black communities we, who have the, the skills and knowledge to survive and have thrived with very minimal amounts of resources and support because of racism. We want everyone at the table to be able to weigh in and give their ideas. And ultimately, the NAACP, we want to offer a space for that. Um, and we want to offer an entry point because um, one of the ways that, for me, when I first was learning about all this, I felt overwhelmed. There's a lot happening. Where do I start when I'm hearing about these massive storms that are happening in the Pacific Islands, in the Caribbean, when I, what, what's happening there? What can I do about it? It feels like a really big topic. And the product that I was noticing was I wasn't doing anything. The overwhelming amount of information and feelings and emotions. Uh, I didn't know how to start. So something like this podcast is to, to reach out to folks to say the entry point is to get involved, to join something, to participate in an organization and think about locally, what can you do in your community? What information do you need? Um, and then how can that information move you to an actionable step? Not just more conversation, but that more conversation can continue with plans and with strategies. So we have programs, we have a dialogue series the Keeping It 100 series, which is to have real honest conversations about racism. And we have topics where we talk about that in climate change, and we have a chance for people to think about what gets hard, what is overwhelming, where are those feelings that get in the way that immobilize us. So we have a safe space to talk about that. Um, and a safe space to talk about how racism has hurt us and has impacted us, because if we don't get a chance to process that, it will continue to get in the way and continue to keep us from acting. Um, it will continue to have us react when we need to, when changes happen and when we need to think quickly. We are on a timeline. If we, if we as human beings intend to be around, because we do know that the earth will continue to be here. <laughs> do we want to be here? It'll just be reptiles and birds instead of people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so like we really, and to me, I, when I first, you know, heard that I, it helped me orient to this because I think when you grew up in the U S you grew up in a very individualized kind of self-centered space where this is about me. 
And this is actually not about us. It's about, it is, it's about us and it's not because we may not be here, but this planet will continue whether we're here or not. And we can't let something like that racism get in the way of actual things. There's a lot that can get, get, be accomplished and get done um, in the next 25 years, you know, and there's a lot that can be uh, recovered if we are able to act and act thoughtfully. To me, I think we all often react. We've seen that as an example within the pandemics that have happened, that the it hasn't been a thoughtful action, it's been reactions, not enough vaccine production, not, you know, and then of course from there, what, what happens as a result of it? Certain communities get access to things before others because we haven't been intentional. You know, places, people of color had less access to the vaccine initially. Entire country, continents, communities, for a while, Africa had no vaccine. Many countries in Africa and in South America had zero, um, like, a year in, you know. That's not okay, right? So we have to be able to see those as examples, that that's an example systemically around public health and our health and our survival. And climate justice is about our health and our survival as well. And so starting one entry point I'm offering is to start the conversation, get more informed, get involved. And then where can we go from there, right? If we, we can have a conversation about what you just said, reimagining the downtown or creating better transportation opportunities for commuting here. Uh, in our communities in Corvallis and Albany. So who do we need to have at that table? There's uh, lots of folks that can get together and offer that. There's plenty that can be done just in that one actionable step. To me, that feels a lot more attainable than how do I solve climate change? We have to make it personal. We have to bring it back to our communities, right? And then we have to think about where we uh, feel insecure, where we get nervous, where we don't want to offend people. These are all the ways that racism continues to separate us. I don't want to say my idea because I don't want to be seen as racist. I don't want to people to not like me. Um, we have to be able to get in the same space and realize that we are bigger than that. And a part of the dialoguing helps us build relationship together so that I know you're good people. And if I know you're good people, when you make a mistake, I'm not going to cancel you. <laughs> you know? But... If we're constantly only coming together in reaction, if we're not building that type of relationship now, if we're not transforming how our spaces look and working on racism, we will only react in that way. We won't actually get to someplace more meaningful. The time to, to work on it is now, not when bad things happen. I'm to tell you my cards down on the table. I've been in grad school for the better part of a year where my research is solely focused on climate change, but it's usually focused on uh, broad scale, like entire ecosystems. So like uh, Alaska permafrost to the yeah. wetlands of, of Florida. And the more and more I've researched this stuff, the more and more I'm right. It, it, like, like you were saying, like, oh my goodness, what do I even do about this? It feels so immense and so big. And I mean, I don't love academia. Those that know me know that about me. Um, <laughs> but just in the last couple of years that I've been a part of the NAACP, there has been more local action tangible local action that I felt has made a difference in two years than in all of the magic papers I may or may not publish because all these papers are behind freaking paywalls <laughs> and like no one can access them. What a joke. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Let's see here. Um, but let's get let's get your papers. Okay, I know you have to be get them into the journals and stuff too. But let's get them out there in other ways and other platforms. So, you know, here's okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it 100 with you right now. Okay. Um. Uh. So I I am a T minus. Sixty uh, something days until I defend my dissertation, and my it, most dissertations are like my science is awesome, yay! Here's my <laughs> science. You should fund it more. And like honestly, my my presentation will not be that. My presentation will be I'm going to show you my science, but also um, the ways that my science. So I, I study soil science. We mm-hmm. think a lot about carbon in soils and in yeah. croplands and in agriculture, and. I have not been able to unlearn certain things. Like, for example, farm workers, the people that literally work the farms, often do not have the money to buy the food they're picking. Yes. Farm workers are often uh, on H2A visas, which um, are a form of indentured servitude still. Um, and, like, I I work on the ecological soil chemistry things. And when I learn that, like, oh, there's a humanitarian disaster in front of me that I'm choosing to ignore because of this, you know, spreadsheet nonsense. Uh, no, no, no. I I cannot ignore the human catastrophe while pretending to focus on the ecological one. Because if we focus on what's right for people, people will do what's right for the environment. Um. So, yeah, I'm, it, to say I like that. I'm going I like through a complete a career change because, like, there's no amount of published articles I can do that'll make a difference. But focusing on individual actions at the local level, mm-hmm. right? W- whether that means, you know, building public infrastructure for um, uh, public housing, right? Because uh, Corvallis is one of, is is the most rent burdened city in the state of Oregon. Yes. It was the most rent burdened state in 2019, and it remains the most rent burdened state in 2020, um, where 30, uh, let's see, where is it? In 2019, uh, 37% of the population of Corvallis are under severe rent burden, more than anywhere in Oregon. Um, And in 2020, uh, it remains 37% of households uh, in Corvallis are spending more than 50% of their income on rent, the worst city in the state of Oregon. Uh, That was from the Corvallis Advocate. We will make sure to put both of those links in our blog post. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, when you think about all of these things, all politics is local still, right? It is. All all science is local at yeah. this point. So uh, I, I, I would urge um, my fellow scientists to, you know, don't worry about what's happening in the academic conferences because, like, I'm going to be honest, I've been to a lot of those academic conferences. Most of the time they're asking the wrong questions. <laughs> um, but instead, focusing at the local level, using the knowledge that you have about environmental systems, and applying that in an equity-focused lens, exactly. uh, you can have, a, I think, you can have a much greater impact on on how you feel about what kind of impact you're having for future generations, but also your neighbors, you know, the the, the, the people that you, you see in Fred Myers. Exactly. Mm. And, and, the, and the individual piece is about our lives and having the lives that we deserve, which is to be big... There's so much that we are separated from when we're separate when we're separated. And just as you are rethinking what this work that you're doing, what this means, your contributions, what you want to do in this in this society, in this in these communities, we all get to ask ourselves those questions, especially in a town like Corvallis, where many of us are middle class and are doing are going to have to shift and think about really what it is that we're doing. And we're going to have to figure out how our lives are going to have to shift and change. 
you know, there's a lot of convenience that is built in uh, to a community like Corvallis. And that has to shift. That has, we, convenience can't be the dictator of what we do, you know? To be a world for everyone, it means we have to understand what we are willing to, how we are willing to live. Um, two, pe two people living in a five bedroom house for example, or um, uh, reimagining how we can be together and be in community will go a long way. And it's a practice that will help us solve problems like the climate crisis. And so actually, speaking of solving problems, um, if, if you think that, oh, I'm only going to affect my local community by doing whatever actions, I'm only going to affect uh, my state politics, yada, yada. Okay, here's a perfect example. In 2021, there was a heat dome here in Oregon. You were probably around for that. It was awful. Mm -hmm. At that time, there were two farm worker deaths, but Oregon's Occupational um, Health and Safety Administration ha did not have any um, heat regulations. And this summer, summer of 2022, is the first time that Oregon will have any kind of heat regulations for farm workers. The only other state, uh, the only other states is are California and Washington uh, that have heat regulations for farm workers. Uh, earlier this year in 2022, the Biden administration looked at, hey, California has these regulations. Washington has these regulations. Oregon has these regulations. Uh, at the time of this podcast, Oregon has the most stringent regulations for um, for getting water and shade in high heat. Um, oh, and also affecting wildfire smoke. So this is all outdoor workers, not just farm workers, I should say. Um, but the Biden administration then directed um, uh, their, their OSHA, yeah, national OSHA to say, hey, why don't you look at implementing what the West Coast states have done across the rest of the United States. So in this in this states as models of democracy, what we do here in Oregon can still be uh, exactly. seen seen as a way to implement national policies. And, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. Exactly. What we do in Corvallis. Yeah. What we do in, in Corvallis and Albany, what we do in Lynn Bitten counties can be an example, you know. We were the example here in Oregon and I believe in Washington, too, when we had to shift to voting by mail and many of the country was completely like, I don't want to do this. I don't trust this. We had already been doing it. We have been doing motor voter for yeah. a long time now. And we've had, we have had consistently high turnouts, high involvement in elections. So it was the time for us to really be visible there and say, no, we know this works. And we this, know this is how you do it. This is how you do it. Mm -hmm. Right. We can continue. And, and our voice and, and being vocal there matters. And taking risks to to be that visible matters. Um, and racism, just to keep keep drilling this point in, prevents us from that. It makes us scared to do that because we, of how we might be judged or how we might be looked, um, how we might be seen uh, by others. The more that we work on that, being comfortable around people, noticing where we're afraid, noticing these pieces where we were taught about other people who are not like us, the more we can be honest about that, where we can face that, heal, heal from that, be vulnerable with each other about that, the closer we will be, and we won't let that get in the way of us being together when we've actually worked through it and have seen something different. And so not only do we need to be that example, that we can be that example around uh, better transportation, better policies around housing, better things, uh, better infrastructure uh, in our communities here. We can also be better an example 
of how to be together, how to work together, how to be justice focused and equity minded, how to be honest and authentic. The programs that we have, it's it makes sense to talk about white supremacy and racism. It actually helps um, our our communities because we have that knowledge are better off. We can challenge all of these narratives that say that that makes people uncomfortable or whatever. We get to actually be that bold. Um, And to do that, it starts with us deciding that for ourselves and getting involved. Um, And and it's the deciding and the acting concurrently that uh, we need to to focus on. Sounds like a revolution. Okay, <laughs> let's do it. Okay, b- before we get to your outro song, that was, that was a little little feeder. Um, if you're interested in learning more about the local Lynn Benton NAACP branch, uh, you can find more information on their website. It is all one word, lynnbentonnaacp.com. Uh, we'll also link to that in the uh, blog post as well. Um, there's uh, lots of summer events. Not too long ago, there was a community housing event that also had some... Uh, food assistance, housing assistance, um, all, all kinds of many services. Um, so yeah, I n- encourage you to, to get involved because again, I've been doing climate change research for the better part of a decade. In the last two years being involved with NAACP, there's been more tangible actions than anything I've ever done in my academic life. <laughs> um, okay, so with that, uh, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. One of the things thank we you. ask our, our guests is um, is to choose an outro song. So. What song did you choose and why? The song I chose is Talking About a Revolution by Tracy Chapman. Um, I'm a huge fan and it can sound like a whisper. Um, and if that's how it starts, great. Well, with that, thank you so much. This is off of Tracy Chapman's uh, 1988 album, uh, self-titled Talking About a Revolution. Enjoy. Don't you know Talking about a revolution sounds whisper. Don't you know? Talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the welfare line. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline, and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.